Welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff, with Team Rhino Outdoors. And if you want to check out our company, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. I have no co-host today. Typically, it would be Brad and Carrie Hoppy with Musky Mayhem Tackle. And if you wanted to check out everything that they have to offer, visit MuskyMayhemTackle.com. Now, the reason I don't have any Brad and Carrie this week is just because I'm screwing things up. I got a, I got a short, typically... Our podcast schedule goes something like record Sunday, Monday. I put it up on Tuesday for everybody to listen to it on Wednesday. While I'm going to be gone, I, I have a really screwed up schedule for the next couple weeks. So I'm gone on like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, which basically would be the record and the whole edit and the whatever. Well, we've been also been fairly busy in the shop. So and Carrie and Brad are also Brad's doing some guiding. Carrie's building a lot of bucktails. And when Brad's not guiding, he's helping build bucktails. So for us to try to line up me, Brad, Carrie and a guest can somewhat be difficult. I have all the recording equipment over here by me. Brad and Carrie do not have it by them. So I couldn't just say, hey, how about you guys go ahead and take care of the podcast this week? I'm going to take the week off. So in order to do that, I said, I'm going to just do a podcast and we'll get them back on here shortly. And when I say shortly, I mean in the next couple of weeks, possibly as early as next week. And I'm just going to record it that way. I only need to schedule me and the guest. I don't have to go back and forth to try to schedule because like I said, this time all of our guests are mostly guides or fishing in the you know people in the fishing industry. And it's summertime. People are out fishing. Guides are out guiding. And sometimes they're fishing late into the evening. And that was the other thing, too. I know last year I didn't have to do this because I would podcast till midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. And, well, this year I've been trying to refuse that. So, anyways, that's uh, that's where we're at with the podcast this week. My, my guest this week, I'm going to have two of them. I'm going to have John Betty. We're going to do a short segment, as we've done before on past podcasts, about leader, we'll call it leader basics or whatever, for the coming up season. We've had people that sometimes send me messages asking me to pair baits with certain leaders, and they said, do you have uh, like a spreadsheet for this type of thing? Well, we don't, but if you, um, we've done this a few times seasonally, and we'll, we'll do it again. It'll just be a quick 10-minute segment with John. And then we're going to go visit with Pete Rich, who we haven't had on the podcast since episode five. If you want to listen to what Pete had to say back then, go visit episode five. New listeners to the podcast, they may not have started from the beginning. They may not have even realized that Pete had ever been on the podcast. And our topics for Pete, we're going to talk a little bit about the PMTT coming to the Chippewa Flowage. That'll be a really short segment that we're going to do. We're going to talk a little bit about his muskie bash that he does in October in Treelands. We're going to talk a little bit about the Lake Geneva Muskie School. And then we're going to talk trolling patterns with Pete. So that's what uh, that's what we got on tap for this week's episode of the podcast. If you could, and you listen on Apple, iTunes, however, for your podcast, go there, leave us a rating, a review. And if you, no matter where you are, just hit the subscribe button on the podcast so that way you never miss an episode. We we put out an episode every single Wednesday. Typically, it goes out at 5 o'clock in the morning central time. And so it's right there delivered to you. And you can find the podcast on, like I had mentioned before, iTunes, Google Play, or I think it's Google Podcast now. You can find us on iHeartRadio. You can find us on Podbean. I believe there's uh, Stitcher, Spotify, I think there's one other one. Tune in radio, I know is another one. 
But anyways, that'll pretty much cover it. So if you've listened to the podcast once and you found it once, you should be able to find it again. Let's not waste any more of your time. I don't have anybody here to chit-chat this afternoon, so I'm going to just get uh, John Betty on the phone first. We're going to talk a little bit about leaders with him. That's John Betty with Stealth Tackle. And then I'm going to go get Pete on the phone, and I'll talk to him. So stand by. All right, my first guest today is John Betty with Stealth Tackle. John has been on the podcast multiple times, usually for short segments. We very rarely hit him up for long segments, an entire episode. I think he might have been episode, uh, I want to say three. If you want to hear a complete episode of John, go back to episode three. But like I said, we've we've done this a short, like we'll call them leader tips or leader tactics or whatever, terminal tackle tips. We've done that a few times on the podcast, so browse, browse the episodes and see if you uh, find something from back then. But anyways, the reason we bring John on is because we have certain, you know, some people that ask us questions on pairing baits with leaders because a lot of baits can be leader sensitive and there's certain baits that will definitely not operate properly with the improper leader on them. So it's very important, but it's often overlooked. So John being, we'll call him the expert in the industry for uh, a lack of a better word, I guess. Uh, we bring him on and he likes to clear a few things up for him. But first off, John, the one thing I've been hearing a lot of is short leaders versus long leaders. Both have their time and place. Why don't you clear some of that up? Because the, the it seems as though the trend lately is to go shorter, 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 which may not be always the best option. So you want to talk about a few advantages and disadvantages of long versus short leaders. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of times in early in the season, we're downsizing baits, we're using smaller baits, and the advantage to using a smaller leader that time of year is going to help those smaller baits perform. Because if you use a standard, bulky, heavy, musky leader, uh, you're probably not going to get the performance out of the lure that you need to get to try to trick those fish that are that are in those early season post-spawn pre-spawn in spawn modes to trigger them to fish so you're almost forced to go down to a, to, to a smaller leader when you're going down to those smaller baits i mean that's that's kind of what we've learned over the years and uh, it all started pretty much with the spring leader with the smaller rattle baits down south guys having success with those but you know if they were putting them on a big heavy leader they're getting nothing because they're killing the action of the lure. So that's, that's kind of how that all started out. Um, you know, now we're getting into the time of year where we're throwing our, what I would call standard size musky baits. And, you know, those lures, I don't see a reason why we should be really using a shorter leader, especially the deeper we get into the fall, the more aggressive the fish get. Uh, the more they're going to start headhunting baits, so they're going to be at some times grabbing leaders before they're actually hitting the bait. So you want to have that that added length on there so that, you know, if the fish hits, they're not grabbing the line, they're grabbing the leader, so you're getting a little bit extra protection. So if that makes sense. That does make sense. And that was one thing as I read more and more about short leaders, it's uh, it's always one of those things I worry about would be, like you said, headhunting on some of those bigger baits. If you only have a six-inch leader, some of those mouths, I mean, if they hit the front of the head, they can easily, you know, 
cut it off sure. on the front side of that leader if you're using a shorter leader. So that was obviously a concern. For anybody that's looking for their leader needs, uh, John carries a pile of his stuff. Obviously, everything he carries is on StealthTackle.net. We also carry all of John's stuff on our website, TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. So if if you're looking for short versus long, we carry it all. So as far as yeah. John and I care, we don't particularly care which ones people purchase. We're just trying to get them to do the have the right tool for the job, right. so they have yeah. very little issues with the with their leaders and their, and anything like that. The other thing, John, people talk to me about is snaps versus split rings, and they want to know if there's a right time and a wrong time. Like personally, I think it's a personal preference thing. What do you think on snaps versus um, split rings? It, it's definitely a personal preference thing. And the, you know, a direct connection between a split ring and a solid ring, having a solid, and what to explain to people what that is, because that still confuses some people is, so you have your, your ball bearing or your swivel on your leader, and then the leader itself, and then on the end of the leader is a, just a solid ring. So there's no way to open or close that. So basically what you're doing is direct connecting that to the lure. The way you have to do that, the drawback would be you'd have to have a split ring on every single one of your lures that you're going to use so that you just split ring right to that ring. Now there's nothing that opens and closes. So that's going to be probably the most secure connection you can make with uh, your lure to a leader. The drawback, another drawback to that is if you're a kind of guy that changes baits a lot during a day, you're probably going to get kind of tired of where's my split ring pliers to change my lure out. If you don't change baits often during the day, it's it's not that big a deal. I've done it, and, and you really, after doing it long enough, you really don't even really realize you're doing it. It takes a couple extra seconds. It's something you got to get used to. So as far as snaps go, the big thing with snaps is using high-quality snaps. I see it a lot on social media where guys had snaps breaking out of them. There's usually a couple a couple different re- reasons that's going to happen. One is you're using a cheap snap. The other reason is people don't change their snaps out often enough. Even if you're using a high-quality snap like a, a stringy Staylock snap, over time, they will all wear from just from opening and closing. Regardless of if you catch a fish or not, you know, they're built with spring, a snap is built, it's bent wire under spring tension. So when you open and close it, you weaken the snap. So it's a good idea where you want to change those out pretty regularly. If you're doing that with a high quality snap, you the odds of having a problem are going to be very slim. I would agree with you. I But if, if somebody is looking for the absolute 100% least potential for an issue i would say solid ring leaders with a split ring on your bait is gonna the chances of failure are far less on that than anything else not the thing that a failure on a split ring or a snap is very high at all but if somebody's looking for the 100 like i'm gonna say 100 because nothing is guaranteed but if they're looking for the most reliable option that's probably it wouldn't you say john i agree with you 100 percent on that and, and what you touched on as well with with what you just said, nothing is a hundred percent. And I would never, you know, tell somebody that, that, you know, our leaders, a hundred percent years, it's never going to fail. You know, terminal tackle takes the most abuse out of any part of our equipment. And, you know, it can, anything can fail. It's just, it, it's just the way it is. I don't care whose it is, 
whether it's mine, a competitor, something somebody made, all we're trying to do is, is reduce the, uh, reduce failure with them. And, uh, it seems to work. So, uh, but yeah, that, that solid rig, the split ring connection is going to be your most secure, reliable connection that there is. Well, when you talked about your musky fishing gear, it's like this, this leader is the most important connection to that fish. And it's sure. often the most overlooked, you know, I mean, as musky yeah. anglers, we just, some guys will probably tie on a leader to start the season out and they may not even think about it for the rest of the season. They may not look at it for nicks, cuts, anything. If you're fishing rocks, they may not pay attention to how the snap is, you know, how, how it's looking, how it's functioning. Right. And so yeah. we're just trying to bring up a few of those points. Right. And that's, that's a good point too. It's, it's up to the, to, to us as anglers ourselves to, you know, okay, I bought these good leaders and I'm good for the year. Well, you've got to, you, you got to take some responsibility on yourself. Like you said, you've got to, you know, constantly inspect that stuff. If you catch a fish, check that leader for nicks or scrapes or, or, or bends in it. Check those snaps out. If you feel them getting soft, change them out. Don't wait. You know, little things like that, looking at your line to make sure the line, you know, the line above the leader isn't, isn't getting all scarred up. You know, there's a lot that gets overlooked and that's something that as anglers, we need to make sure that we're doing to, you know, to help, help basically what we're doing, prevent any, any uh, failure. So it's a leader, a good leader by itself isn't going to just, you know, is it the end all to having problems? You've got to take the responsibility on yourself to make sure you're constantly checking that stuff. And a big thing would be retying your leader, you know, not necessarily every day or every fish, like some people might say, but you know, before every trip, even if you're going to use the same leader and it's still good, you know, take, you know, cut, cut back a foot of line and retie it on there. So it's nice and secure. So you won't have any problem. Absolutely. Now, John, getting back to that uh, spreadsheet list that we were talking about, we don't exactly have no. that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to list <laughs> off a few baits. I'm going to see if you can't give me a an option, a stealth tackle option that will fit their needs. Start, sure. Starting off, I mean, let's start right now. We're going to be going with a lot of people are going to be throwing uh, bucktails. So let's mm-hmm. let's go with, um, you know, what's what's an option for bucktails? Well, so right now we're coming into the beginning of September. So I'm guessing most people are going to be using bigger blades for a while yet. And your options, I, I break it down into, into two categories because, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that love fluorocarbon, but there's also a lot of people that don't. So I don't want to go out there and say, if you're using a bucktail, you need to be using a 130 pound or heavier uh, fluorocarbon leader because some people just don't want to put their faith in fluorocarbon and I can totally respect that. You know, a lot of this boils down to personal preference. So I would say if we're talking double 10 bucktails, bigger bucktails, I would use in fluorocarbon. I'll break it into the categories. I go with a 130 pound or heavier fluorocarbon leader, uh, minimum of 12 inch. And uh, in wire, I would go with 174 pound wire no lighter uh same thing i'd go with a 12 inch leader if you're a fan of stranded wire uh 135 pound seven strand or a 49 strand uh 175 pound works great too with bucktails so lots of different options pretty much you can go with whatever your personal preference is some guys want wire some guys want floral some guys want um Mm -hmm. 
the uh, right. the forty nine strand, seven strand. They're you're, you got it covered. Right. So the other option that a lot of guys would be using would be we'll call we'll say the dive and rise category. We'll go with Suix and Bobby baits, those types of baits, even like the Smitty jerk bait. What uh, mm-hmm. what are what should guys be using for for those types of baits? Pretty much stick with the heavier solid wire, same as, as the bucktail, the twelve inch, hundred seventy four pound solid wire seems to work best with those baits. Uh, again, if you're gonna go floral, stick with the one thirty and above. I don't really see the need to use a stranded wire with those. I'd stick with solid wire. Another nice option getting into this time of year with those um, jerk baits, dive and rise. We're not talking side to side. We're talking up and down more would be to go with a weighted leader. Uh, It's going to help those baits get down a few feet deeper, and you'll probably find you're getting in contact with more fish using those. That's a good option. And then um, should guys be using a swivel with those, or doesn't it matter? Yeah, yeah, on those a swivel's fine because it's it's actually adding a little more weight to the leader, so it's helping those baits, you know, stay down a little more. It's it's dive and rise, so it's more of an up and down, not a side to side like a glide bait. So you're not worried about, you know, the weight of that swivel pulling pulling the nose side to side, which I guess would go into a, the next bait you're probably gonna bring up would be the glide baits. With those, I like a twelve inch solid wire leader with no swivel on it because by eliminating that swivel that helps those lures move more side to side so with that option you're looking at the st174 walk the dog or g i believe you call it yes yep sounds good and so for guys that are looking for phantoms hellhounds squircles those types of things that's what you'd Mm -hmm. be looking for there and you were correct in my assumption that was where i was going next was glide baits then right. um, the next, obviously, the next one that would be the biggest, one of the biggest categories, especially heading into maybe more and a little more in late September, but would be like mag dogs and regular medusas. What, mm-hmm. what do, what's the options there? Mag dogs and regular medusas. I would bump up, if you're a fluorocarbon guy, I would bump it up and not be using anything less than 150 pound floral. I would also consider this time of year for late fall going to a direct connection that we discussed on those types of lures because those types of lures seems like the later we get with the big rubber, they do like to headhunt those baits. So you're just eliminating another potential failure by going to that direct connection if they're hitting those, those baits up high. And uh, solid wire, uh, you could still use the 174 pound wire or you could even bump it up a little heavier and go into the 240 pound range and again i mean we've talked about it before the uh the solid ring to a split ring connection we just talked about it it's going to be your best connection it's obviously a lot more i want to say a lot more screwing around but it's definitely more screwing around than than working a snap Mm -hmm. so sure yeah yeah it takes a few extra seconds and you know the biggest problem i find is what you know i spend more time looking to see where I set my split ring pliers down the last time I used them to change the lure out than I do actually changing the lure out itself. So, Yep. So then uh, the last casting option I'm going to throw at you right now would be big rubber, husky medusas, and pounders, even monster medusas, I think. But more more guys are throwing the huskies and the pounders. What's the, what's the options they should be looking at there? 
Uh, same thing like the mags. I'd go up to a, uh, a 150, 180. I wouldn't go lower than 150 pounds on the fluorocarbon, maybe even consider going 180 and even as high as 200. The uh, solid wire, if you, if you like the solid wire, then I would stick with 240, the heavy stuff. And then, uh, you know, another option even for the mags as well that a lot of guys like. They don't like fluorocarbon, but they want a flexible leader. They don't like uh, uh, using the solid wire. You know, the, the famous dog balls happen and you can trash a leader just in a cast where the leader kinks. So they want something flexible. The 175-pound 49 strand is a great option for that. If you're looking for a flexible leader, but you're a little shy of wanting to use fluorocarbon. So uh, with those bigger rubber baits, that 175-pound 49 strand works out well, too. And again, I wouldn't go anything shorter than uh, 12 inches. I know it's, I even have guys that have the custom make for late in the year, November fishing, late October and early November, longer length, like up to 18 inches. And I know it gets harder to figure eight with the, the longer leader you have, but uh, just that added security, knowing that if that bait gets hit in the front side, you've got that leader to protect your line from getting uh, cut off or if the fish rolls in it, not just getting cut off in their teeth, but their gill plates get cut those too with the shorter leader. So those are some options for the bigger rubber. And then the last, we'll get into a couple of trolling options and then we'll uh, let you go about your day, John, because I know you're pretty busy right now. So like, let's talk trolling obviously, because that's going to be something that is going to come into play here towards the end of September, October, November. And we're not exactly sure if we'll have you back on, so let's run down a few bigger trolling baits: headlocks, matlocks, hexes, legend plows. What are mm-hmm. what are we what are we looking at there? That I get I am a lot, and I'm basing this on what people buy and request is the heavy. They they like the invisibility that fluorocarbon gives them. So, but with those bigger baits, they want to protect their investment a little bit from rocks and and. Uh, fish and everything else so they're bumping up and use it as heavy as 200 pound uh, fluorocarbon and with the uh, metal lip baits some of them are even going a little bit further and we we make we make them for for some guys we're probably going to be adding them when we get time but it's just a small uh, section of uh, stranded wire that we can attach to the leader that's going to help if if you've ever had where those uh metal with baits they get turned in the fish's mouth sometimes and the leader wraps on the metal uh, or on the metal lip wraps on the leader and will actually uh do damage to the leader or even cut the leader so we're working on that right now it's kind of in the works um we shouldn't even talk about it <laughs> so, but uh, <laughs> but that's something i do i i've done for people too is add that little length on there uh, for the, the metal lip stuff, just again, for, for added security. And then another option, if you don't like fluorocarbon and you're going to be banging a lot of rocks, a, a good option is a, uh, seven stranded, uh, coated wire leader. Sounds good. It also sounds like something I need you to add with the, uh, with those, uh, headlock, matlock, metal lip bait leader. And I didn't realize you were keeping that one in your back pocket. Well, it's, that's, uh, coming. Yeah, that's in the works. We've been trying to try to work on that for a while. And just, it's, or fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, we just haven't had the time to, to, to work on it, but I've had a couple of guys run them for me and liked them. So something will be added, added soon. 
So I don't know if we'll have it all up, up this fall, but, but at some point we're working on those. Well, secrets out now. Yeah. I so, guess it is. <laughs> so now we're looking at uh, a couple I have on my list would be like 22 longs, 22 shorts, uh, the, S the Rapala, what is the SS Shads or whatever the heck they, they roll up. Shad wraps, super Shad Wraps. There you go, super Shad Wraps. Those, they're running that kind of stuff up on Green Bay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, what are you recommending for those for smaller baits? Up there, I'm still using either the, the, the 49 Strad when we're with the bay, when you're down south of the bay, the water's a little darker. That, that stranded wire uh, isn't going to really affect anything. It's going to help those smaller baits because of the diameter. It's going to help help those baits get their optimum performance or i stick with the 100 pound uh fluorocarbon leader as well on those another added uh thing you could use on those is one of those the, the kp leaders that we uh do that we work with kevin pishke on who guides up there on the bay it's a weighted trolling leader that um catches a lot of the sand grass and that 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 uh tends to be floating around that time of year um those and that also helps keep the baits down a little bit as well and then last but not least john let's go with like me we'll call mid-size like crankbaits 10 inch jakes legend perch baits uh, i'm trying to think what else we got out there even that new 50 cal from lunge and lures what uh for the for those types of types of baits what are we talking for for a leader for that for the for trolling those those yep. trollings yep yeah i i would save just your again that that uh seven stranded coated wire the or a hundred hundred and thirty pound trolling leader and uh, fluorocarbon i think we can both agree that the stealth leader st 130t the stealth tackle 130 pound fluorocarbon trolling leader is by far the most popular one that he has it will fit most of these options but again if you're either going really big or you're going much smaller then you may want to consider your your uh, choice there in leader right yeah and the, the other reason i bring up the coated wire too with the if you're going to go wire uh having the coated wire is uh necessary the, the main reason for that is these fish tend to roll up in the leaders at times and, and if you're using uncoated wire you're probably going to be cutting into the into the fish's skin and by using a coated wire it's going to be a little more forgiving on the fish and just helping them we don't want to you know we are all about releasing these things so we want to get them back in the water in as perfect health as we can. So uh, once those leaders, if you're using a, a, a wire leader that, that cuts into them and it cuts through that coating or into the skin, they got the potential of, uh, of getting infected. So that's pretty much the main reason for using the coated wire when you're uh, trolling. Well, John, I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk leader maintenance tips, tactics, whatever you want to call it for people that are looking to get, get some stealth tackle in their hands. Obviously I said it before, but uh, you can get it from us at teamrhinooutdoors.com or John, why don't you give them the information on your website? It's stealthtackle.net. Perfect. So hopefully we put some information in your hands that will help keep more fish pinned, I guess. And we have less equipment failures and just, put a couple things in your mind. Like I said, leaders and those types of things are often overlooked. I know I do it frequently. Uh, John's there for, to give me those reminders from time to time that I need to get, get that uh, stuff taken care of. But anyways, uh, I'm going to go get uh, Pete Rich on the line and we're going to talk some actual musky fishing with Pete Rich, but thanks again, John. I hope you have a great fall. Okay. Thanks for having me on and remember to change the snaps.
Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Our guest today is Pete Rich, Pete Rich Guide Service out of essentially the Hayward area, Chippewa Flowage. We had Pete on, I believe it was episode five, if I'm correct. We haven't had Pete on in uh, quite a while. It's been well over a year. I haven't even talked to Pete much this summer because he's been so busy and we've been staying busy. So Pete, how the heck are you doing these days? I'm doing great, Jeff. It's, uh, it has been a long time, but I guess that's, uh, I guess that's a good thing. Right. Well, last time you were on a podcast, we had like six listeners and now we got like 12. So we're doing, we're doing good. Um, that, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. I might actually reach like eight of them. You might. Yeah. There's a chance. <laughs> yeah. So today we kind of wanted to touch on a few different topics. We want to talk a little bit about what anglers, uh, if we, I don't know how many tournament anglers even listen, but you got the PMTT coming up on the Chippewa Flowage, which you're very familiar with. And yep. so we'll kind of touch on what, what those anglers maybe would expect. Then, uh, but let's, before we get there, and then I think we were going to try to touch on uh, not only some casting patterns, but trolling patterns, uh, you know, not to pigeonhole you as a troller, but like, that's kind of what puts you on the map up there in Northern Wisconsin. And for people that are you know, starting to get into trolling, I kind of want to talk a little bit about how you, how much time you put in to develop the patterns that you have, de- that you've developed. And so we'll talk about that. Awesome. Uh, but the first thing, let's talk about, you know, the one good thing about you, Pete, is that you've done a lot with uh, trying to educate anglers. And I know you and also Ryan McMahon from over in the Twin Cities, you guys run uh, a couple of schools throughout the winter, but you in particular run your own uh, on-the-water clinic school in the fall, that fall musky bash out of Treelands Resort up there in Hayward on the Chippewa Flowage. Let's talk first off the, the musky bash. When is it? To, anyways, I it's like I said. Usually, you and I talk, you know, whatever every three weeks or two weeks or whatever, and we literally haven't hardly talked at all this summer. So, what are the dates on the musky bash first, and then why don't you talk a little bit about what it is? So, I believe I'm going to pull up my calendar. I should know this off the top of my head, but like you said, things have been so hectic, I can't even keep track of what's happening tomorrow. So, the fall musky bash this year, October twenty second, twenty third. 24th and 20 kind of wraps up on that Sunday the 25th but yeah it starts on October 22nd you know this is something that well you've been a part of it now for three years this is the fourth year hopefully you're able to make it back uh you know Steve Jensen has put in a, a ton of effort to help make it a really good event as well and you know it's to, to me this this one's more of like a fishing event with a ton of information included you know like as you've seen you know we're not talking about summer patterns or how to maybe become a better bucktail fisherman that time of year. This is about showing up, having a great time, um, and getting a large group of guys together to cut the pattern. You know, Steve and I always kind of, we, we literally don't write our seminars for this until like the week beforehand, because we're, we're giving the pattern that he and I are on, we're giving that pattern at the event. So we're literally putting everybody who shows up on the current pattern. And then for three, four days, we're all working together as a group to get as many fish in the boat as possible. I remember our first year, it was a trolling bite. Trolling was outstanding, caught a bunch of big fish trolling. Uh, last year was the exact opposite. Last year it was all about suckers. And that was something that we all kind of worked together to, to kind of figure out was when you drag through market fish, you'd follow the sucker around that they weren't grabbing that sucker the first pass. You literally had to like loop back through two, three times before he would end up 
coming up and eating that sucker. And that was something we kind of found as a whole group. And I, I can't remember how many fish we had last year, but I know it was, gosh, I had to be pushing 20 in the couple days, all on live bait. There were a couple caught trolling and a couple caught casting. But uh, I think that's something that we do very well is get people on the current pattern and then beat that pattern to death to get as many fish caught as possible. I remember there was uh, that woman from Iowa, I think, caught four, which was her first, second, third, and fourth, fourth muskies of her life, I think. Well, what I found to be, not only did the, uh, was the, the sucker deal pretty, pretty solid, but I couldn't believe the amount of quality fish we had last year. I think it was, if yeah. I remember right, it was like eight over 45, I think. If Is that right? I think it is. I know, I know there were, I know almost all of them were over 40, if not all. Okay. And, and I do think there were like maybe five or six at least over 45 with, yeah. uh, the biggest, I, the biggest was caught troll and that was a 48 and a half. And then two, we caught that, <laughs> that fish just, just didn't even look normal. It was so fat. <laughs> right. Yeah, one of these days, if uh, I've been meaning to edit it, but even this winter was busy, I've been meaning to put that video together to put it out. Actually, is a kind of like a showcase for this event coming up in uh, what, just about two months, a little over two months. I'm thinking. God, it doesn't feel like it's only two months away. <laughs> it doesn't because it just seems like no. we just left the last one a couple days ago. It's just <laughs> it, it. It literally feels like we were just like, "Gosh, are we going to be able to fish this year?" Like back in May, and then all of a sudden it's September. So I want to reiterate what Pete's talked about. I've been to this event three times already, and and what he says is correct. These guys are 100% dialed in on trying to catch, get you on the pattern. Like, literally, they will tell you, run this amount of line, do this, run this bait, run this sucker, run these spots. I mean, every single night, it's another recap of trying to get you catching fish. It's not like, like Pete said, uh, summer tactics that you can't use. It's right there specific to the moment to try to help you catch more fish. Yeah, and I, I think one thing that, that Steve and I both do really, really well, and I think that's something that probably uh, I, I'd like to say real quick, is just that we're so on getting you guys on the pattern that even for people who've never been to the Chippewa Village before, you know, every morning we have breakfast, and Steve and I literally go to everybody's table and say, where are you starting? And some people are like, all right, we're going here. It's like, all right, great, good spot, go to it. And some people are like, I don't know. I've never been here. There's a gigantic lake. Like, I know you guys gave us a ton of info, but, you know, sometimes just taking that first step in where to start can be tricky on a lake that big. And, and we will literally take guys to the map. And I remember that very first year we did it, we had two guys that were like, well, we're not sure. And I'm like, look, this island's been on fire. Go from this point to this point for three hours with your sucker. There's fish there. Just wait for them to turn on. And they got a 48 and a half, like, first 10 minutes on the water that morning. And that's literally how we want to get guys catching fish from the get-go. So that one, for anybody that's interested, that one's up in Hayward at uh, the Chip. It's on the Chippewa Flowage. It's out of Treelands Resorts. Pete, how do they go about getting in touch with either you or Treelands to get involved in that event? Yeah, uh, you can call Treelands and ask for either Tatum or Mallory. They have all the information you would need. Uh, if you have more questions on, like, the fishing and what to expect, you know, it's an all-inclusive kind of package with your lodging, your meals, your seminars is all included in one price. I can answer any questions people might have, but to just get signed up, call Treelands. And then what, if people want to get in touch with you to ask questions about it, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Even for, you know, if they're looking to book, book a guide trip with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, Facebook or, or my website, but I mean, everybody, so many people use Facebook that 
you know, you can find me at Pete Rich Guide Service on Facebook or PeteRichGuide.com is my website, and then I'll have all the info you need to be able to get a hold of me. All right, and then Pete, the one other event that would have typically taken place in the spring for people that are looking to get in, you know, learn a little bit more this uh, this fall yet would be the Lake Geneva School. I know you guys dubbed it the Geneva Muskie Convention. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so what what's uh, going on with that one? That one I've never been a part of. Why don't you talk a little bit about that one briefly? Yeah, so that was, uh, last year was our first year doing it on Lake Geneva. We had done it the year before that in Madison, and I think we kind of found a really nice home in Lake Geneva. Lake Geneva is, you know, obviously a brand new musky fishery. Uh, it's a difficult lake to fish. And, you know, Ryan, it, this is me and Ryan McMahon host this one together. And, you know, by no, by no means do Ryan and I consider ourselves to be Lake Geneva experts, but we both have, you know, great musky knowledge and, and kind of understand what fish are doing throughout the musky range. And then what we do is we bring in a lot of local guides too, to give it that local flavor. This one is much more like uh, a la carte. We do some, we do seminars on Friday night, Saturday night, and then we open up our boats and the other guides that we have involved with who are Andy Shira, Doug Cloet, uh, Chris Torresano, and we might be picking up a fourth guy if I remember correctly. Um, and then what we do is we open our boats up. So like you sit in the seminar in the evening and, you know, like I can remember when I first started fishing, like, you know, me and like being a little kid and going to a seminar with my dad and, uh, you know, you, you get this great information, but then it's like, all right, how do you apply it? Or you might get an, inf- you know, a seminar in the middle of the winter, the musky show. And then it's like, oh, like, that was great info, but how do then do I apply it? So what we're doing is doing the seminars and then basically taking you out on the water to do that exact same thing to kind of give a, a little bit more of a hands-on feel. And though you can get in the boat with us for like two and a half hours is what we're doing the, the fishing blocks with. And we have enough time to open it up for everybody to get in kind of the really cool part about, you know, finding a silver lining and in, in the Corona kind of bumping us out of May from this year is we're doing this in early November this year. And it's right in line with the full moon and, Hopefully Cisco's are going to be spawning and this actually is going to be a much better fishing time than that early May on Lake Geneva. This is going to be much more of a kind of, hey, Cisco should be in pre-spawn and let's get out there and hopefully pound a bunch of these fish that are growing like wildfire in that lake. So for people that want to get involved in that event, what's the dates? Uh, November 13th, 14th, and 15th. And we do that out of the, that we do at the Cove of Lake Geneva, but you do all the signing up through through me and Ryan McMahon. Sounds good. Well, moving on away from the schools. So those are two great yep. schools. If people are looking to get involved in some events yet this fall where they can try to help put more fish in the net, especially because, like you said, it's hands-on right there, accurate information. You go out and apply what you learned right away. So, Pete, let's talk about the PMTT on the Chippewa Flowage for a little bit. I believe that event is late mid to late September, if I'm not mistaken, it was supposed to be the championship because of some cancellations. It's now the qualifying tournament for, you know, our anglers that are, um, are listening that fish the PMTT, which I don't know how many of them are. What should they expect when they come to the Chippewa flowage during that time frame? Yeah, that's going to be like that late September is going to be like that kind of even though the flowage doesn't really turn over, it's just too shallow. It does, you know, it only develops a thermal climb in some really, really small sections. Um, so a turnover there never really affects much. It still seems like fish kind of go through that 
turnover movement um, there a little earlier than the other lakes. So that should kind of be like right before what I would kind of consider, you know, your, your turnover transition. And that should be, you know, and something that I think a lot of guys should think about, or, or this could go for anybody who's coming up to the flowage in, you know, late September, early October is we have gigantic schools of crappie and crappie uh, are probably our biggest schooling forage on that lake. And that is the time of year that they are in transition. And so the crappie will be migrating from, you know, the mid lake basins into their fall areas. And so what I personally like to do that time of year is target the, the, the neck downs. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to be deep water, but if I've got a big basin over here and a wintering area over here, I'm going to try to target the, the smaller channels, the, the old river kind of channels that cut through stuff where you take that big open water and condense it. It's almost like, you know, it's like hunting in a way, you know, you, if you're out hunting big woods, you try to use topography to funnel the deer past you. It's the same way on a big lake like that is I want to try to use these small neck down areas to that the fish are going to be forced to funnel through and target those areas. So you want to look for a lot of, a lot of transition areas um, that can be shallow structure in those transition areas. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, a neck down that's a uh, hundred yards wide. It could be a long old river channel that just separates one basin from another basin, but those fish will be on the move. Something that gets often overlooked that time of year are stumps. The the fish that time of year really, tra- uh, really kind of uh, get, get tight on those stump flats. Um, and the only way to kind of find those is really just to get out, use your side imaging, uh, sighting side imaging on a Chippewa foliage is your best friend. Uh, because it's such a different type of lake. It's, it's got so much character to it. It's got, you know, trees, stumps, points, and it just, it's not a natural lake. So it doesn't set up like a natural lake and really understanding it with your side imaging. Like if I were coming up to fish the PMTT and I was coming up states for two or three days to pre fish it, I would spend those two or three days side imaging the lake. Um, because you'll find, those areas that the crappie are holding in the stumps, you'll find those areas that the crappie are transitioning, you know, from the summer basin to the winter basin. And you'll be able to uh, really dial in on what, what points are have the characteristics and just kind of more fish holding potential than, you know, than just something that might look nice on a map. So Pete, for, if you're an angler fishing the PMTT that time of year, what are some must have baits that they should have in their tackle box for that time of year? Uh, I love, you know, if I'm fishing the deeper stump flat, the weighted suic, it's probably more like the 10 to 12 inch suic. I don't really throw the, the nines very often. And I definitely lean on the 12 more than anything. If I'm in the weeds, then probably a 10 inch unweighted suic, just because the weeds are so shallow there that, you know, you can't really, you can't really fish over the top of them. You have to have something buoyant enough to fish through them. You know, always, always big blades. Um, you might find if it's a warm September, you might find that absolutely just burning a showgirl or a junior um, could be your best pattern. If it's a cool fall, you know, slow rolling something just enough to keep it up above the weeds, like a 10 or a supermodel can be really good as well. We get some cloud cover that time of year and some wind. Top waters are always an incredible bait on the Chippewa foliage. I do like swim baits that tend to produce a lot more pike out there than muskies, but uh, fish are having a hard time going. Uh, swim baits can sometimes get some stuff out that don't 
normally really produce. Um, for guys who are going to think about trolling, it is not my favorite time of year to troll. However, if the crop year in transition, you can take that same philosophy of targeting the neck downs and then and trolling those. And I have caught some fish. The fish I do catch then tend to be big. I very rarely, you know, double or triple that time of year, but I definitely do tend to catch a, a big fish or two doing that. And this will come as a big surprise, but I really like 14 inch shakes and 12 inch matlocks. <laughs> I swear it's all <laughs> I think I use. <laughs> but, you know, I'm probably starting to slow down a little bit that time of year. You know, water should probably be in the, the low 60s, I would assume. Um, so, you know, there's no need to troll at that four, four and a half miles an hour. Um, but, you know, once again, like just really grinding out those areas and, you know, trying to kind of, there's a bunch of deep cribs in those areas too. Uh, we've done well jigging those cribs, um, especially when the crappie are transitioning through them. And once again, you'll be able to use your side imaging and you'll be able to find that stuff. And then it's really about targeting the areas the crappie are in that time here. I'm glad you brought up a little bit about trolling because I meant to, I was going to ask you. I t- I knew typically September isn't an amazing time for it, especially that time, and I just assumed that uh, I'm glad you I'm glad you picked up or you know talked about it, got that out of the way. But speaking of trolling, like I would say, Pete, that's kind of what I would say put you on the map was your abilities to put muskies in the net trolling up in the Northwoods. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that. How did you how'd you go about? I mean, stumbling onto that pattern, like how much time was spent, how much time, like what, what was the process that you went through to break down the chip well flowage? And that, we'll talk about the chip, but I more or less want to try to talk in general terms for anybody that's looking to try to break down their water for trolling. You know, how did, I, I know you use 14 inch jakes, 12 inch matlocks, 10 inch matlocks. How did, first off, why did you settle on those? And then, but let's, uh, like I said, let's talk about the whole process. What, what got you there? Yeah. So for me, um, the place that I kind of learned to fish out on the Chippewa flowage was, you know, it, it's a bucktail topwater crew and the middle of the summer would come and they'd be like, yep, fish go out deep to, to hide for the summer. So it's a, it's a great time to do yard work and, you know, we'll see in late August. And obviously that's, the easy way around things when you can't troll it would be a very difficult lake to go catch a lot of these fish that i catch trolling casting because the lake is so huge and and there's just so much of it that it would be a very low percentage but in my mind it was like well there has to be a way to do this and so before trolling ever opened up my thought was to go jig the really tight neck downs with bondy baits and it was incredible the first day we did it we get a 48 we get a 42 that evening. We go out the next day. We get a, another like 42 and a 44 just jigging these super tight, deep neck downs because in my mind, it was like if the fish have to go from A to B, I want to intercept them in the middle. And just doing that for a year kind of was like, all right, there's something here. So then what I did was I kind of took, I, I remember reading an article I want to say it was by James Linder, and this was a long time ago, but he talked about how muskies suspend off of structure. And the whole article was based off of muskies suspending vertical from the base of the brake and horizontal from the top of the brake. And you kind of make those two lines, and that was where they intersected. So for me, knowing the structure and knowing that, okay, hey, two weeks ago, the fish were right here on Pete's bar. So it's not like they're a mile away now. 
the water temperature has literally just forced them off of that. And so that was literally how I started my trolling was doing exactly what Linder talked about and how they suspended off the edge of structure. And the, the very first time we went out and did it, um, I think we caught like a 38 inch on like a, like a Crisco or something like that, <laughs> because that thing only ran like a foot down. I think I put like two ounces of lead in front of the leader. I literally had no idea what I was doing. And we go driving off the edge of a point, get this rip. And I'm like, Oh my God, what did we do? Snag something. And I look behind a boat and there's a musty airborne. I'm like, Holy cow, we caught one. <laughs> like literally that's how trolling started. But it, it was, it, it was that kind of just having that thought and, and taking what I felt I, I, I learned in that article. And, and also that wasn't just like, Oh, maybe this works. I had started fishing that way a lot more on the flowage, um, but not trolling, but kind of making sure that I targeted, you know, the vertical from the base and, and horizontal from the top. And I was putting my boat over that more often, still casting up into the shallow structure, but holding my boat vertical from the base of the break. And the amount of big fish I started catching in the figure eight immediately went up. And I don't think these were actually now that I've been trolling, I know these weren't fish that were following in from the top of the structure and then coming in and eating at the last second in the figure eight because these fish were all hitting at a thousand miles an hour. I think these fish, and, and now, like I said, now that I've been trolling it enough, these fish were literally suspending themselves exactly where that article talked about. And we were just figure eating on top of where they were suspended and catching them there. So I already kind of had some confidence in doing that. And then it was just a matter of doing it. You'd be amazed how many people, I guess we could call some of them professional anglers around here, but they're not like hardcore musky guys who will be like, Hey, you know, I, I got some guys I'm taking out next week. Uh, how fast are you trolling? And you know, how deep are you down? And I'm like, man, that took me years to figure that out. So good luck. You're in the right spot. But you know, some of those guys, they, they kind of got to figure it out on their own. But what I'm getting at there is it took a long time to really gain that confidence. For me, it was probably only a two year long time, but you got to realize I was trolling every free minute I had. Like you and I were talking before we started this conversation about how, you know, like now that, you know, fishing's a job or, you know, whatever it might be that I don't really fish when I'm not working. So that was like the last time that I was like hardcore into trying to figure something new out was, was trolling where every free minute I had, I'm out trolling and doing it and doing it, knowing that it was going to work. And then you kind of start to settle into what works for you. The, the matlock headlock thing was literally my buddy, Mike showed me a YouTube video of how a matlock ran. And I'm like, Oh my God, like that's, uh, that's something that uh, is going to trigger fish. Um, the 14 inch Jake was just, you know, a buddy was like, Hey, I think these catch fish. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, let's try them. It seems a little big. And uh, it's amazing how many small fish you catch on 14-inch crankbaits. But, you know, just trolling a 14-inch crankbait doesn't mean you're only going to catch a 45 or bigger. And we catch a lot of 38s and not many 36s or anything under that. 38 is kind of the, the low end of what we're typically trolling up. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's something, too, that in this darker water, open areas. I want bigger baits that are going to get more attention from larger areas. So that way I just feel like the strike zone's bigger on a big bait, something with a big profile, because it's going to get noticed from 
a greater distance away. To your point about the big baits catching small fish, I mean, I've caught quite a few fi- smaller fish on on twelve inch matlocks as well. So, you know, for guys that are like, they're like, ah, oh, yeah, the fish in my lake aren't going to eat that. Eh, you'd be surprised. No, they absolutely will. Yeah, I've caught. They absolutely will. I think I've caught like a thirty inch muskie on a pounder already, and that thing had no, <laughs> no business getting involved in it. So their their uh, their eyes are a little bit bigger we, than they are. We caught a smallmouth on a mag dog the other day. <laughs> <laughs> actually bit it too like it was hooked in the mouth we didn't snag him unreal <laughs> it's <was> so dumb <laughs> so moving on to trolling patterns obviously there was a lot of time on the water did you spend a lot of time looking at lake maps off the water for certain spots that you were uh gonna troll or did you basically just bump off the spots that you had already caught fish casting when you were gonna try to develop a trolling pattern because because i knew the flowage so well i already felt like I knew what I wanted to target. Um, as I've started trolling more on other lakes, I mean, I'll bet you probably half the fish I caught this summer were on the flowage. Uh, the other half have been scattered between three or four other lakes that I've been, that I troll as well. Those lakes I have spent more time, uh, kind of looking at a map, especially kind of like we, we all, even on a lake that we know, like we all feel like we know the weed beds. We all feel like we know the shallow rocks. There's a lot of intermediate structure that has completely changed the way that I fish what is probably my, one of my favorite lakes. And, and that's not the Chippewa Flowage, but, and, and it's changed the way I cast it too, because I found some rock bars that, you know, look nice on a map. And then you start trolling them and you catch a fish and then you troll it again and you catch a fish. Then you troll it again and you catch a fish and you're like, Oh my God, these fish are piled up on this thing. And then you can go back and cast those same spots and have a ton of confidence because you know they're there. And I think that's also something that is kind of a great way to use trolling is to gain confidence. Some of those like medium depth locations, you know, like I'm talking about rock bars that, you know, maybe have a crest that tops out at six feet, but the majority of that rock bar is in 12 feet and drops off to 40 feet on each side. You know, you don't really, it's like, yeah, I guess I could throw a bucktail over here. It feels more like a bulldog spot. Some of these spots have been my best bucktail topwater spots because the fish are there and you know it's literally just finding the, the the time of year that they're using these things and and i really do think trolling has made me a better fisherman simply for the fact that i feel i have a more intimate knowledge of the lake when you spend 10 hours a day trolling at four miles an hour i'm literally seeing 40 miles a lake every day now, a lot of that might be the same structure over and over, but if you pay attention, like for me personally, I'm much more mentally exhausted coming out of a day of trolling than I ever have been casting. Obviously, there's no physical exhaustion in trolling, but mentally, I am just glued to my side imaging because I, I, I'm really trying, because you'll notice the little ins and outs, and you know, trolling isn't just driving around. Trolling is, you have to be more precise in your boat control with trolling than you ever do with casting because with casting you have the ability to trigger more strikes. You know, you're ripping a bait, you're pausing a bait, you're figure eighting, which is probably the best trigger in musky fishing. So your ability, so you have to be so precise in where you're presenting these lures because for the most part, these lures are just traveling in a straight line. You know, you make your turns and that would be the biggest thing for people who are new to it. I think the majority of them just drive straight and it's incredible how many times your strikes actually come on your turns. 
And for me personally, it's almost always on the outside turn rod because that's the one that's getting set up. Um, I do get hit on the inside turn, which is the slow down rod. Those fish are tough to keep pinned because everything's slowing down. It's not really driving the hooks, but it's incredible how you're trolling, go through a good area, you make a left-hand turn and the rod on the right gets ripped. So you have to remember that you still need to trigger fish. You know, I think that's why I, I think so many novice musty fishermen, why they get hit so much in the figure eight, if they do it, it still amazes me how many people don't think you have to figure eight all the time if you don't see a fish. I'm like, God, I'd lose 60% of the fish I put in the boat <laughs> if we didn't figure eight every cast. Um, but what ends up happening is your bucktail is traveling in a straight line. You've piqued this fish's interest doesn't know if it's a meal or not you come into the figure eight you speed it up you take it away from that fish and you bring the predator out of them and that kind of that, that kind of forces that fish into a decision of whether he's going to eat it or leave it you have to do that same thing with trolling because you're for the most part your cranks are just traveling in a straight line you still have to trigger that strike that's why guys who continuously win the pmtt or you know the guides that the the fishermen are fishing with is we catch a good amount of fish out of the back of the boat because we're so used to triggering strikes. These guys who keep winning the PMTT, it's not that I don't think it's that those guys have figured out something in musky fishing that nobody else has. I think those guys are just extremely good at triggering strikes. I would agree with a lot of what you just said there. So the one thing you talked about was speed and not like, okay, well, so what, in, in my opinion, trolling comes down to, this is goes back. I've mentioned it before on the podcast, like Buck Perry spoon plugging. He yep. has, there's two things. Speed control, depth control, those are the biggest two things when it comes to trolling. Let's talk speed. Like, how long did it take you to dial in the speedy? And, like, like the one thing for a lot of new anglers is they, you know, did you troll for four hours at 3.4? Like, what did you do to figure out what speed we're triggering? Because, obviously, once you figure the patterns out on these particular lakes, they're repeatable year after year after year. Uh, absolutely. So, how much time did you spend before you were going faster, going slower. Like what was your process there to try to figure this out? Obviously it took, you know, it took a long while over the course of, you know, a couple of years and, or whatever, but like, wh what did you do? For, for me, it has been every day still trial and error. I'm going to have my comfort zone, but you know, so it's, it, to me, it's all based off of water temperature. You know, the, the, the warmer, the water, the higher the fish's metabolism, the larger the strike zone, the more they will travel to eat. You know, everybody thinks, oh, they're putting on the feed bag in the fall. They actually don't eat anymore during the fall. They actually are eating less. The body's just processing the food slower, but they have to eat to put on fat for the winter and to feed their eggs for the winter. So I think they're just easier to fool in the fall than they're necessarily even eating more than they do in the summer. I actually think they eat more during the summer because they're processing that food so quickly to put into growth that they're constantly eating like all the time. And because they're a cold blooded animal or they're not an animal, but you know what I mean? Cause they're cold blooded. They, the, the warmer their core temperature is the faster they're processing food. So they actually eat an insane amount during the summer. And so for me, I'm always just pushing the limits of speed. A, a, a nice safe place to start is four miles an hour during the summertime. Now water clarity can affect that. I know I've been on Mille Lacs trolling, and I mean, I'll be pushing it up to 5.5. I've been ripped out on the lax at five and a half miles an hour on a lake like the Chippewa Flowage. I, I, I've never trolled at five miles an hour. However, I have been trolling at four and a half, paying no attention to what I'm doing, about to realize I'm going to go into a foot and a half of water 
cut the motor as hard as I can and gun it and then get hit on the speed up rod. So that had to be traveling faster than five miles an hour, probably even traveling in the excess of six miles an hour. Um, so, you know, these fish can swim really fast <laughs> when they want a meal. They're not, you can't go fast enough. But so for me, four, it was just kind of nice. It's just kind of a nice number. There are days that I do have to take it up to four or five. Um, during the summer, it's very rare that I'll go under like three, seven. So for me during the summer, it's just about that speed thing, covering water, bringing that predator out. It's just like the same thing, you know, with, with bringing in a bucktail, you know, middle of the summer, you're not, there's some lakes that you do need to slow roll. Um, but for the most part, we're going quick with bucktails. So, you know, you're not, you're very rarely working a dog super slow during the summer. You're usually putting a lot of rips and, and pauses and, and really trying to trigger. Um, cause I feel it's the exact same thing while, uh, while we're out trolling. Um, you know, now as those water temperatures cool, that definitely is going to change the way I'm trolling and the speeds that I'm trolling. Uh, so as those water temperatures cool, then I will start slowing down. When we get into November, there's a lot of times that I might be trolling under three miles an hour, but that, you know, so for me in the summer, I try to, you know, four miles an hour and then figure out the pattern from there during the fall, you know, like November fall, I might be at like three, two and then figure it out from there. I mean, I might have to, if I'm not getting ripped, but I'm trolling over fish that I can literally see on my side and down imaging and they're not hitting. I might slow down as much as to 2.7. There have been days in the fall that I've actually even had to speed up to like three, five. Um, so even though I feel like I have my comfort zone, every day is still literally uh, a new piece to the puzzle of what do they want this day, just like it would be casting. And then obviously the second part to that is the depth control part. Cause the one thing I've, I spent a little bit of time trolling with you. Um, I think it was with you, me and Duff, or maybe, I don't know if Duff was there. It might've been, I don't, I don't remember. I just remember an instance where you were going, we're going to get snagged in three, two, <laughs> one. And literally as soon as you hit zero, we got snagged. So obviously you knew where your baits were running and you also knew the structure very well. Uh, how did you how did you go about you know finding because once again this is a repeatable process once you figure out certain times of the year where these baits uh, these fish are hanging and that what what depths your baits are running you can make multiple passes and and trigger fish but the the key though is to know where where your baits are how deep your baits are running how did you go about doing that I mean did you was it just you knew certain structure was sticking up so far. So when you got snagged on it, you'd pay attention to your line counter or, or did you go about it a different way? Well, so as you're trolling, you know, like, that is one kind of cool thing about the flowage is one, you know, I almost always get my lures back. So I'm never like too upset when I snag, but because there's so many stumps, I snag them all the time. Well, if I'm, you know, I very rarely change my line lengths during the season that I'm in. So like, if I'm trolling during the summer and I want to be say seven feet down, I know exactly where each lure is on my down imaging as it goes through, because I've been doing it for 25 days in a row. So, but it's also really important to understand where your lures are at in your down imaging. Cause like this was actually one of the, probably the coolest moment of my fishing life. One of the greatest experiences of my life was me and my dad had my daughter out swimming this year. And my daughter's five and she was like, daddy, I want to go fishing. I'm like, all right, you want to go get some walleye? She's like, no, I want to catch a muskie. I'm like, oh, all right, cool. <laughs> yeah, that'll be easy. 
So we literally had been trolling for six minutes, I would say. And I go over a fish on the down imaging. And because I know exactly where that matlock was, once he got to where the matlock was, I made a hard turn to the left because the matlock was on the right side. And I was like, hey, maybe he'll come up and eat. And as I say that, we get ripped. My daughter helped my uh, dad reel this fish in. You know, she she pet him. She helped release him. It was literally one of the coolest experiences of my life. But what I'm getting at there is knowing where that fish was. I also knew where my lure was when my lure passed him. And then when I needed to make that turn to hopefully try to trigger him. Now, with that said, you know, you don't, that doesn't mean you have to go around snagging stumps, but trolling is always better when you contact cover. So I'm going over a rock bar. I want to make sure I go across the point at which my lures are going to slam into those rocks. Even if it's off of my trolling pattern, even if it's inside of the edge that I want to be on, I'm still going to try to contact cover whenever possible. So that paying attention to where the crest on your down imaging point might be, and then when your lure is actually hitting that point, will then, okay, oh, all right, well, if my point's right here on my down imaging and I just hit it, now I know exactly where my lure is at on the down imaging. So when you go over a fish, or if you go over a big boulder that has always produced fish for you, you can say, okay, now I've just went past it, give it maybe 20 feet, let that fish get in behind it. Now I've cleared that piece of structure. Now I can give that lure a hard rip by turning the boat away from it. And it's amazing how many strikes come right there. Well, Pete, in an effort to get you uh, on with the rest of your day, let's go with one more question. So what would be, for somebody that's looking to develop a trolling pattern on their particular lake, can you give them any advice to get started? Like what's, what's, uh, I mean, what's the best advice you can give them to get, get rolling on this? Uh, do it when the fish want to be trolled. And what I mean by that is water temperature dictates everything fish do throughout the course of the season. Water temperature dictates when they spawn. Water temperature dictates what their comfort zone is. I mean, now, not all fish are doing the same thing all the time. But, you know, as, as a guide, I'm very rarely out on a quest for the magic pattern that nobody's ever discovered. When I'm guiding, I am trying to find the most obvious pattern that the majority, I'm trying to find what the majority of the fish are doing and then beat the heck out of that because then I'm putting the majority of the odds in my favor to get started with our first fish and then it's out of the second, third and so on. So, and that's why I love trolling in the late fall. And I love trolling in the middle of summer because water temperatures are forcing fish into predictable areas. That's why I also hate trolling in June. I don't hate trolling in June. I, it's also why I don't troll as much in June and I don't troll as much in September because the water temperatures aren't dictating that the fish be pushed out off the structure and then pushed down because of the heat. I mean, I, literally during the summer, you have to be responsible about it. You can't just, you know, go trolling when it's 85 degree water time obviously. but when that water is in that 76 77 75 degree range the majority of fish just aren't up shallow so i'm going to troll out deeper because the majority of the fish are there and i think that's probably the easiest way to get started is trolling when the majority of the fish are in that trolling pattern so for me that's typically mid-july through mid-august and then i don't really get excited for trolling again until water temps dip below 50 in the fall. Um, I found that sucker fishing dominates tr trolling when those water temps are between 50 and 60. 
And then in the late fall, if it's a really slow cool down from 50 to freeze up, that will be your, some of the best trolling you've ever experienced in your life. If it's a really fast fall from 50 to freeze up, it, sucker fishing will out produce trolling almost every single day. So like in, in the case of being on your lake and getting started, uh, I think the other biggest thing too is don't get below the fish. If, if you, so most lakes, the thermal client is going to establish around 20 feet. The Chippewa flowage, the majority of the lake is shallower than 20 feet. So it's almost like a thermal client. There's just not that much deep water for them to be in. So the other thing too, especially during the summer is don't get below the fish. If I'm trolling, say, eight feet down over 20 feet of water, even if the fish is on the bottom, he's only 12 feet away. I mean, my rod's almost 12 foot long. That fish knows the lures there. They're, especially during the summer when their metabolism's cranked up, they are going to travel to eat. So just stay above the fish and, and keep the lures moving quickly. Well, Pete, I just want to thank you for spending some time, taking some time off the, uh, off the water, but off your golf schedule as well. And, uh, you know, come out and talk musky fishing with me. I know that when you're not on the water, you like to be out on the golf course. It's a tough summer. It's, it's a really tough life I have here. I'm not sure how I do it. Yeah. Well, I don't know how you do it in the winter. Honestly, I couldn't hang out up there. That'd be rough, but oh, it's, I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm just not much into the snow, the cold and ice fishing that much. Although I can't stand ice fishing. So, but anyways, thanks a lot, Pete. I hope you have a great rest of your fall. And uh, for anybody that's interested, check out the Muskie Bash in Treelands in October, late October. And then uh, get in touch with Pete if you're interested in the Lake Geneva School. That'd be in November 13th, 14th, 15th. Uh, thanks again, Pete. Have yourself a good day. Have a good rest of the season. Yeah, you too, Jeff. Hope I see you in October, buddy. Thanks, bud. Yep. Bye.